0: listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Hear the word of the Lord as written in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, especially kids, you guys, who are in here and are sugared up to make it through the next 35 minutes or so with me. I appreciate it, and I appreciate you, parents, even, even more. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, typical Saturday mornings in my house growing up yesterday morning. I hope your Saturday yesterday was different than most Saturdays. Um, yes? No? Okay, a, a basic Saturday when I was growing up. Um, my mom worked weekend nights and wasn't home until 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, so my dad could get away with this. At 8 a.m., he would crank the stereo as loud as, well, loud enough to reach all of us in our bedrooms and play Pink Floyd's song, Time. (laughs) Those of you that are laughing know that's the one that starts with a minute's worth of a hundred different clocks, all chiming and ringing and alarming and all that. And he would let it go and then turn it down and shout at us, it's Saturday morning, it's 8 a.m., it's time to get started on your chores. And if we didn't respond by immediately leaping out of bed, that was considered the fourth warning. And the next was the cold water treatment that would get us up. And after breakfast, we were given a tour chart. Here's your assignments for the day. And once those assignments were done, we were allowed to eat lunch or supper depending on how motivated we were that day. Uh, My dad used to joke with his friends that the only reason he had kids was so he wouldn't have to do all the household chores himself. I know, as a kid, I think I knew that that was a joke, but it didn't feel like it. Especially on Saturday mornings, it didn't, we didn't, my brothers and I didn't so much feel like Uh, like sons. Now, as an adult, I know dad was just using lunch as an incentive to get us to do our chores promptly and not dawdle on it because there's nothing more annoying than continuously telling your kid, go back to work, go back to work, just please go back to, just get it, get it done, right? But as a kid, it, it still sort of felt a little bit like a rejection, you know? Like, the family table is the, the foremost symbol of what it means to come together as a family and to be exiled from that or to be forcibly removed from that until you perform up to an accepted or prescribed level. Uh, it, it felt like… It felt kind of like a rejection, like, well, I'm part of the family as long as I continue to earn my way into this family, as long as I perform… I should probably see a therapist. Uh, But these kind of things are helpful for sermon illustrations because a similar dynamic is going on in the Galatian church. In this letter we've been reading written to the Galatians, uh, Paul is writing because there's two groups within this church, a Jewish group that is fairly confident in their sonship, like we belong, we're part of this family. The Messiah who is inviting people into this family is Jewish after all, Uh, so they're confident in their sonship, but there's this other group, these Gentile believers in Jesus, who are coming into this family, and the sort of Jewish, almost older brothers are looking at him saying, like, well, you don't really look like us, and the best way to become part of us is, here's the chore list. Here's the chore chart. Here's what you need to do in order for you to become part of this family. You know, you may be in, but you've got work to do, shape up and conform to the Jewish law, the the Torah, before you can actually rest in your sonship and know that you're part of this family. But Paul's writing them to to say, no, I don't think you guys get it. You're both You're both in the same situation, Jew and Gentile alike. You both need to move from slavery, is the illustration that he uses, into sonship. You both need to make the same movement, and it's not by getting the work done. It's not by doing the chores and getting invited to the table. It comes on a totally different basis. So, Galatians 4, 1 through 7. We're going to walk through these seven verses together. I'm going to take them in kind of two big chunks. Verses 1 through 3, slaves. Verses 4 through 7, sons. From slaves to sons. All right, let's jump in. If you're uh, following along in that Bible under the seat in front of you, it's on page 1156 or on page 16 of your Scripture journal, which I completely forgot to bring with me today because... Hey, we're back in Galatians, and I almost forgot. All right, yeah, everybody turning there? You're there, Galatians 4, chapter 1, uh, or chapter 4, verse 1. While you're getting there, I'll just briefly recap where we've been in this series since we took that month off for Advent. Uh, In this letter, Paul is writing to these churches in order to, to work on this split between Gentiles and Jews. Like I've said, there's conflict between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers in Jesus on, do you keep the law or not? Do you become Jewish in order to come to Jesus? Now, Paul says, well, look, the coming of the Messiah has completely changed the nature of our relationship with that law, Jew and Gentile alike. If Messiah has come, then the way you become part of the Messiah's family isn't by keeping the law, it's by faith. Jews join the Messiah's family by faith, and Gentiles join the Messiah's family by faith, which means Jew and Gentile are alike, equal before God. For either group to tell the other you have to keep the law is to say, no, Messiah didn't really come. He didn't really change everything by His death and resurrection so all of that is the first three chapters paul's been arguing as we get to the beginning of chapter four but we're also just coming off of an illustration uh, that paul's used where he says before jesus came before the messiah came the jewish people were like children who needed a babysitter in order to walk to school and back to you know babysitter to keep them out of trouble but now jesus has come the messiah has come and he's not a child he doesn't need a babysitter and if you're part of Jesus' family through faith, then you don't need a babysitter either. You also are a fully grown adult heir, a son or daughter of God, fully able to inherit. Okay, so he's just finished that illustration, and that takes us right to chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, I mean that, which is kind of a way of saying, like, let me put it another way, or let me say it again. Or think of it like this. I mean that the heir... You know, the one who stands to inherit. The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now, this situation isn't exactly what we would think of normally when we hear the word slavery. An heir, a child in a household in an estate who stands to inherit it all one day, but at the moment it just isn't allowed to use any of the resources that will one day uh, be his. That's not necessarily slavery. Paul's kind of stretching the analogy to make his point here. Uh, That's not necessarily uh, slavery, but it's exactly how the Jewish people saw themselves in their current spiritual exile under Rome. They're sons of God, sons of the Father who owns everything, the whole world, but that sonship isn't doing them a whole lot of good right now, not while they're in spiritual exile. For all the good that being a son is doing them, they might as well be slaves. Most Jewish theologians writing around this time wrote and thought that Israel was still in a spiritual exile, The fact that Israel was still under political oppression from Rome meant to to most Jewish people that though they may be physically home, they're still spiritually exiled. They're still spiritually not allowed to be home, which that result or that situation is exactly what Torah, the Jewish law, the Old Testament, what, what Torah warned would happen if Israel insisted on continually walking away from God. They'd be exiled. If you know the history, you know that 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 physically happened. They were exiled to Babylon and then allowed to return, but still feel spiritually exiled. This is the, the punishment for walking away from God and walking away from what the law prescribes. Exile, forced to live within and serve the interests of the pagan nations around them. Another way it was talked about was basically being enslaved, subject to other people's other gods. So, Paul takes that point of connection and applies it in verse 3. Okay, so he's just said, like, an heir who's still a kid is no better than a slave because they don't have any rights. They're still being guarded by managers and all that. In the same way, verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children… We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And no one knows what he means by that. The elementary principles of the world. This is one of those places where we're like, Paul, could you give us just a little bit more? What are you referring to? As many PhD dissertations have been written on this, each one has a slightly different idea about what this means. So I'm just going to give you what I think. Uh, Paul's trying to get across here in this argument. What does he mean when he says the Jewish people have been enslaved to the, uh, the elementary principles of the world? Now, elementary principles is a, it's just one word that we could also translate something like um, building blocks. Okay, so uh, the word is sometimes used to talk about the alphabet, right? Because letters are the building blocks of words. Uh, the word sometimes used to describe the sounds you can make with your mouth, because the sounds you can make are the building blocks of speech. Notes are the building blocks of music. The building blocks of the world, when it's used this way, normally refers to the four key elements that make up everything in the Greek way of thinking. Do you know what these are? Do you know three of them because of, you know, the 70s neo r and punk fuzz rock electronica, earth, wind, and fire, yes, thank you, plus water. So water, earth, wind, and fire, the four elementary building blocks that in the Greek mind made up everything, the, the whole world. So if you saw this phrase, the elementary principles of the world, translated anywhere else, you would translate it something like uh, the, the principal elements of the world or the building blocks of all physical reality or, or something like that. Okay? Now, this tends to make most interpreters pause and go, is that really what Paul's talking about here? Because we don't ever see the Jewish people worshiping earth, water, wind, and fire. Uh, we don't ever see them enslaved or idolizing earth, water, wind, and fire, except, and this is, this is the, the line that I take on it, uh, except... When Torah, when when the Old Testament law, when the Jewish law talked about what would happen if the Jewish people couldn't or didn't keep the law completely, three times Torah says you you will end up in other nations, you will be serving other people you do not know, and you will be worshiping other gods your fathers didn't know, gods made of wood and stone. Three times, the gods of wood and stone, the gods of wood and stone, the gods of wood and stone, the gods made out of and and created by people and pointing towards pagan deities, these gods made out of the elementary building blocks of everything. To be under Torah, to be under the law, but unable or unwilling to fulfill it, ultimately means enslavement to. The gods of of wood and stone, the elementary principles of the world, the building blocks of all creation. To be under Torah means to be unable to keep it, which means to be exiled, which means to be serving or enslaved in or to pagan nations, which means ultimately to be worshiping the gods of those nations, the idols of wood and stone. That's the slavery that Paul is describing Jewish people as being under before Messiah came, before the Messiah came, enslaved to the gods of wood and stone. But, let's look at verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. At just the right time, at just the time that He had picked beforehand to break into human history, that's when God acted and sent sent forth His Son. In a passage, in an argument that's been all about sons so far leading up to this, now the true Son shows up, God's Son. God sent His Son, who was, is described in two different ways, first born of woman, just like every other human being on this planet. The Son of God is also born of a woman, fully one of us, in full solidarity with the human race. But also very specifically and culturally located, born under the law, just like every Jew that Paul is writing to living under Torah, living in a state of condemnation, living in a spiritual exile, living enslaved to the pagan gods of wood and stone. The Son of God is born in full solidarity with the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the people that God has chosen to work through. And those two phrases, born of woman, born under the law, contain almost the whole of the Christmas story, which is why I think every year in uh, some, any of you familiar with the lectionary? It's sort of a schedule that some churches use to, to guide their Scripture reading throughout the year. It doesn't matter what year you're in. Every year, the first Sunday after Christmas, what passage do you read? This one. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we all may have adoption as sons. That's the Christmas story. Jesus, the Son of God, became man, was born of Mary in full identification and solidarity with the human race, was born as a Jew, born as the Messiah to the Jews, born, as Paul goes on to say in verse 5, in order to redeem Jews from under the law and go further and throw open the doors to His Father's house, throw them open wide so that all who come to Him, Jew and Gentile alike be adopted as sons. Look again into verse 5. I think Paul is purposely broadening the audience he's speaking to. If if this were a speech, you can almost uh, picture him uh, in front of a room like this, looking at the Jewish contingent sitting together in one corner of it or on one side of it and, and, and saying to them, like, God sent His Son to redeem those born under the law, so that we could all, broadening His perspective to everyone in the room, Gentile and Jew alike, so that we could all be adopted as sons. A quick aside, I should have said this earlier. Remember, when Paul uses the word sons here, he isn't saying that only males get the benefit of being part of God's family. The point is, and he's stressing that everyone, male and female alike, who come to God are, are adopted into the rights and privileges of, at, at his time and his culture, those rights and privileges that would only be given to the firstborn son. Everyone is a firstborn son or daughter of God, fully, uh, fully privileged and ready to inherit all of God's blessings. So, sons here is pulling all of us into the story of of everyone God has ever looked at and said, you are my beloved son, Israel, the king, Jesus himself, and now you, and me, and us. We are his beloved sons and daughters. Now, back to verse 5, there's a double purpose here for which God sent forth his son. In in verse 4, God sent his son, two reasons… Verse 5, to redeem those under the law, second reason, so that all might receive adoption as sons, to to bring Gentile Jesus believers into the Jewish family, into the family of Abraham, but to bring them in from the outside with no previous track record. But it's more than just adopting Gentiles into the family, it's actually adopting Jews into the family as well, but into kind of a, a deeper level of sonship in the family. So, the Jewish people believed, you know, we're all sons in God's family because we're born of Abraham, and Paul is here saying, well, yes, true, but there's a deeper level of sonship to be more like your father, Abraham. That only happens by faith. And this is where the adoption analogy kind of um, stretches a bit. Um, All of you kids that I'm looking at out out here, you are generally like your parents, right? Right? If they're short, then you're short, usually. If they're short-tempered, then you tend to be short-tempered. If they're odd and weird and interesting and unique, then you're also probably a little different, too, in a good way. But it's different if you're adopted into a family, right? If you're born into the family, you naturally share the character and the characteristics of your family. But if you're adopted into it... If you're adopted into the family, then your natural character doesn't automatically or necessarily match the natural character of the family you were adopted into, does it? The person adopted into a family has to learn how to be part of their new family. But there's something really important here if you're adopted into a family. You learn to be part of the family. You don't earn your part in the family. Okay, you see the difference. You learn to be part of the family because when you've been adopted into a family, the parents in that family said to you, you are now my son. You are now my daughter. I choose you. I welcome you in. And all you have to do is believe that what they're saying is true and trust that it applies to you. And you become part of the family. But it's all still external, isn't it? It's something that's been spoken over you, spoken about you, but it's not yet something that's uh, internal yet. You know, there's the external reality, but the inward, the internal reality doesn't necessarily respond correctly yet. You don't naturally respond internally with the confidence that lets you rest in, I am a daughter in this family. I am a son in this family. When you're adopted into a family, you don't naturally and immediately trust that you can rest, that you are fully there. We tend to try to continue to to earn it instead of learn it. But in in the family of God… That that inward trust and character and characteristics of the family you've been adopted into are actually given to you as part of your adoption by the one who adopts you. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now, because you are sons, sons and daughters, firstborn sons and daughters, because you are this. Now God has sent, earlier he sent the Son, now He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, into the seat of our emotion, our personality, our will. He sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. God not only sends the Son so that we can be adopted, but sends the Spirit of His Son into us to indwell us so that we can live into our adoption, so that the external reality of being told, you are my son, you are my daughter, now becomes an inward response of trust and confidence, of faith and of love. The Spirit of the Son enters our hearts so that our, our sonship or our daughtership isn't just an, like, a, like a shell that, that a, a slug wears or like clothes that you can take on and off, but it's who you are. It's what you are and generates within you all of that, um, that, that inward disposition, that, that sort of internal sense that looks at God as, as Father looks at God as Abba. It's a word meaning all of that uh, affectionate intimacy with, with which y- you talk about your own fathers, when, your own dad, when you're in your sort of family circle. Yeah, it's, a, it's an intimacy that, that finds its expression in the words that Jesus used to talk about His Father, Abba. Abba, that's, that's, not, that's not the cry of a slave. That's the cry of a son or a daughter. So, you're not a slave. You're a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir. I mean, you are fully part of the family. So, what does this have to do with us, this passage, these seven verses? This is only half of an argument that actually continues down through verse eleven. Pastor Jeff's going to take us through the rest of it uh, next week. Paul has started by arguing that, like, hey, Jewish people are enslaved to the elementary principles of the of the law of the world because of their inability to keep the law to keep Torah, and they need to become sons. They need to be adopted. Actually, we're all adopted, Gentiles alike just as much as Jews were adopted into the family of God. And then in the next couple verses, he's going to go and say, actually, Gentiles, you too were enslaved as well before you knew God, or better said, before God knew you. We're all enslaved, whether we're Jews enslaved under Torah or we're Gentiles enslaved because we simply did not know the God who had revealed Himself. We're all slaves and we all need to move from slaves to sons, from trying to earn our belonging to learning how we belong. So there's two main ways that this passage I think lives out within us individually and as a church. First is just the question you gotta ask yourself, am I still a slave? or am I a son, my daughter? Am I trying to earn my way into God's family by checking all the chores off the chart, by doing whatever I feel like I'm being told I need to do in order to be be good enough or to feel good enough that God will accept me at His table and make me part of His family? Are you a slave? Are you a son, a daughter, someone who is welcome at the table who is here regardless of your behavior. To be continually trying to earn your place at the table is just another kind of slavery. It's not, it's not sonship. It's not daughtership. It's earning your belongings. So, so, okay, so what about us? What about each of us? Are we slaves or are we sons and daughters? And second, how do you know that you're a son or a daughter of God? How do you know that you're part of the family? In this passage, Paul says that, that, one, that one of the main true signs that someone is a child of God is that the, the Spirit of the Son of God within them cries out with them and for them cries out, Abba or Father. It's a fascinating phrase. Uh, we could do a whole sermon on just those two words, um, so I'll have to dig into those a, another time. You may have heard people teach on this and say, well, Abba is basically the, the Hebrew equivalent of Daddy, right? It's a, it's a diminutive form of what a child would call uh, their, their father. And, and that's, that's partly true. It's not totally true, but it's not far off uh, because Abba is a word used by children and by adults referring to their fathers. It's not just a diminutive child's word, you know, daddy or dada or something like that. Um, Abba is the Hebrew equivalent of whatever you call your dad at whatever age you are within the intimacy of your immediate family circle. So if you're if you're three and you actually let me just ask what do you guys kids what do you guys call your dads at home? Dad, Dad that's a good one. What? Daddy? Daddy? Father. Father. Father? Sir? Any masters out there? <laughs> um, no, there will be now, won't there? Yes, sir. Whatever you say, sir. Um, whatever you call your Dad, at whatever age you are in and within the the sort of intimacy of the family, family circle, right? This changes throughout time and at your age. In in the past, the the way you would refer to your father affectionately might be to call him father. Now if I did that, it would be a sign of disrespect. Yes, father. So whatever you say, Abba, uh, whether it's Abba or Bubba or, or Vati or Papa or Padre or Tata or Daddy or whatever. Abba, Abba is what you say to your dad when you're a child and you're curled up on his lap and you're just absolutely content, snuggling. Whatever you say to refer to your dad, that's Abba. It's when you're an adult and you see your father again after a long time of being away or after all this quarantine or whatever, and you see and you're like, ah, dad, it's good to see you. That's Abba. Abba is whatever you called your father when you talked to him the last time, when you saw him for the last time before he passed away, and you just wanted to say, Dad, Daddy, I love you. Whatever word you use to refer to your father, that's, that's Abba. It's the word that naturally comes out of us internally when we're referring to, when we're talking to our dads, assuming, of course, that, that our dads have been good dads. I know some of you have a different situation or come from a different situation where those words are difficult for you to say or to connect with. It's difficult for you to think of God as Abba, as Father, as what you would wish to call your dad if your relationship had been what you know it was supposed to have been. But Abba is the word that comes out of you when you're just resting and content with who you are in front of your Father and Abba is also the word that comes out of you when you desperately need your Father to step in and be your Father. Whether you need Him to show up in power to protect, or you need to show up in love to comfort, or you need Him to swoop in and rescue you in some way, Abba is what you cry. Abba is what Jesus cried, and every time Paul uses it, Abba is what shows up when we're in our levels of deepest distress and we're calling out for rescue from God our Father and saying, Abba, Save me." One of the truest signs that you have been indwelt by the Spirit of the Son of God, that you are a son or a daughter of God, and that you are living into that sonship, you are learning how to be a son or a daughter of God, is that when you think of God, you think of Abba. Whatever word comes out of you when you think of being accepted and loved and at rest. Or whatever word comes out of you when you need God to show up and be there. So is that, is that how you think of, of God? As Abba? Or is it, or is Abba hidden behind the formality of prayers or expressions that allow you to keep yourself at an emotional distance from God? Almighty and most merciful, transcendent, heavenly Father. doesn't have the same ring to it as Abba. Though there are, of course, times when we should approach God as almighty and most merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, and, and on and on like that. But there are other times where we just we should be able to call out to God and say, Abba, Father. So can you do that? Do you do that? Is God your Abba? Because you're not a slave in His house. You don't need to approach Him with genuflections to appease Him in order to get Him to listen to you and accept you. He already has. You don't have to work to earn the accepting gaze of your Father. You already have it. You're a son. If you have faith in His Son, you are a son, you are a daughter, and you're always welcome at God's table in God's family, whether the work is done or not. Because God's own Son, God's own Son, Jesus left His sonship behind and all the rights and the privileges that went along with it in order to trade places, to swap places with you. Whatever work Whatever chores were on the list that you thought you had to do in order to be accepted back at the table and in the family, to earn a place at the table, that's Jesus' work now on your behalf, completely and fully done in His death and resurrection on the cross. So, now we're we're all sons and daughters. None of us deserve it, and none of us can earn it. Sonship is a gift freely given. It's a grace. It's granted. It's never earned. It's only learned once it's been offered and given. That offer of sonship or or daughtership has been extended to you, to you, and to you, and to you, to all of us, and and to each of us, because the one true Son at, at infinite cost to Himself gave up all of it so that by His death and resurrection, He can say to you, if you're with me, you're part of the family. You're part of Abba's family. You're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. Come meet my Abba. Pray with me. Father, even as I begin to pray, I think, I refer to you as Father, but what does that mean? It's become a habit, of course, a good habit, but you are more than just Father, but you're Dad and, and Daddy and Dad when I'm in trouble and need your help. Father, you invite us into Your family. You call us to be Your own through faith in Your Son. We pray that You would mercifully grant that we would see this offer through Your Son and, and accept the gift that You're giving to us of belonging, of, of sonship, of daughtership. free us from our slavery to trying to earn your love, and help us to see in your face and in your gaze the eyes of an Abba who loves us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.